There was a nine minute version of a twelve inch for a low drum got a new motor, but I, I ran out you of time. You fucking cunt! You cunt! You yeah, won't! You piss! Is that what it says? I never got around to listening to it. Is that what it says? Or were you just insulting me? Stanley, and this is our 80s aquifer. When we could be diving for pie. Welcome to the next in my 80s aquifer series, and um, I was seriously chuffed to get these two guests, Clive Langan and Wynn Stanley, Madness, Costello, Bowie, all, all the great artists they worked with in the 80s. I would have been thrilled beyond belief to just get one of them, but to get them both, I chanced in and got very lucky. I don't think I've ever heard an interview with the two of them, certainly not in recent years. So it was a real thrill to get them both. Uh, first part you'll hear um, started with just Alan, with a few um, problems connecting with Clive. But uh, he gets there just as we enter the 80s. Part one of the interview begins now. So he's in Portugal, eh? No, I'm in Portugal. You're in Portugal, okay. Yeah, yeah. so I'm Alan Clive. Clive's in London somewhere. He lives in Hackney, I think. Well, he used to live in Canada. Oh, I, thought, I, thought, no, I thought it was Clive that was in Portugal. So I missed, no, no, I missed, it's me. no, it's me. I love the fact that the guy in Portugal has no trouble. It's the guy in Hackney. Yeah, I've done a couple Portugal. of these before with my family because yeah, my family are back in, over there in the UK. So I, I do this quite a bit with them, you know. So before we get to the 80s, I just want to get an idea of how you first got into production and engineering and that kind of stuff. I started as an engineer in a little studio in Fulham called TW, TW Music. And, um, well, well, actually, well, okay, just, when I first left school, um, I tried to get a job at Abbey Road or, or Decker at Broadhurst Gardens in Hampstead. And both of them came back to me and said that they were only taking on, this, this was... You know, this was 1969, <laughs> and they came back and said that they were only uh, taking on people 
that had done the Tonmeister course at Guildford University, Surrey University in Guildford. So uh, that was out for me because I couldn't even get on that course. You know, to have A-level music, A-level. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I didn't want to get involved in all that. So anyway, I got a job. Well, I got a job at Decca, but not in the studio. And then I moved to um, to CW, this little studio. Well, it was a little music shop in Fulham. And I persuaded them to build a studio in the basement. So that's how we started. So I started off in a little four-track studio there. And they did so well that they bought the building next door and turned that into an eight, um, into a eight-track, I think. Yeah, then 16, and then eventually went 24-track. And that's when I started doing the Stranglers. I, I was doing all the... Well, I wasn't... Yeah, that, that, actually, that came later. When I first started there, I was just doing whatever, you know. And, and, and in fact, I actually did a band. They were called the Guildford Stranglers at the time. <laughs> and I did all their demos. Um, so when they finally got a deal with, uh, with the United Artists... Um, Martin Rushing worked at United Artists that he was going to produce them but they said they wanted to do it at TW with me so I met Martin anyway it all worked out great and then that was it so and then I eventually went into partnership with Martin we started up a studio out where he lived but that, anyway that's years later yeah so I stayed at TW for eight or nine years just, you know just recording bands um, what felt like your first breakthrough where like I mean, was it the Stranglers with Duchess? Was it Madness? Yeah. I mean, that's right at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, that was, yeah. So what happened, I'd, I'd engineered the first two, was it three Stranglers albums with Martin, and then they then they, then they wanted a change, and, and they asked me to, to do um, The Raven. So that's when it all kind of happened, really, because I, I went to, um, we went to Paris to record that, Patty Marconi, and then we came back to London and we, and we mixed it at Air Studios. Oh, yeah, sorry, I should say, but prior to that, I've been doing a lot of work for Stiff. I've done some stuff with Lena Lovitch and Rachel, actually, no, Rachel Sweet came later, Lena Lovitch and uh, um, Joan Louis, yeah, just different Stiff bands. So what? So while I was mixing the Stranglers album, this was, this was about August of 79 I got a call from Dave Robinson saying he signed a band called Madness and then I got a call from Clive who I'd already worked with as well I did I did some death uh, some stuff with Death School with him you know a couple of years or you know just prior to that and uh, he said that the band wanted him to produce their album because he knew the bands Dave Robinson wanted me but he was Clive obviously was happy for me. To, anyway, that was it. So that was our first collaboration, really. The first Madness album was that was yeah. it, and then it went on from there, and it just snowballed. It just carried, you know, went on. Mm -hmm. We did, you know, Teardrop, Explodes, and whatever, Dexys. <laughs> yeah. So Madness did Madness feel like the big breakthrough then, and did it feel immediate with the Prince, or was it because that was the first like hit they had? Right. Well, the or Prince. Did that feel like a stepping stone, or did it feel like? Well, Clive did the Prince without me he did that prior to that so he, he was probably doing that roughly when i was doing the stranglers raven album he did that the single that came out on two-tone 
was Clive's version. Then when they signed to Stiff and we did the first album, we re-recorded it. So the, the version on the album, on One Step Beyond, is a different version to the, what, what was on the, right. which was the single. So the single Clive did on his own, and I did the whole, the whole of the One Step Beyond with Clive's, and we, and we re-recorded the prints for that album. Okay. Okay, so getting into let's get into the eighties then. So nineteen eighty, there was the Absolutely album for Madness. Yeah, and um, it was a brilliant time to grow up uh, with a band like Madness because it wasn't just the music; it was the videos and everything as well. Yeah. In terms of of the songs, I mean, Baggy Trousers, Embarrassment, My Girl, Night Boat to Cairo. Did the singles just kind of present themselves? The singles. Well, the well, My Girl was on. Did you did you say My Girl? You you, you did say My, my Girl. girl. Yes. Yeah, well, my yeah. was on one step beyond. So, like hits from 1980. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that song just stuck out when I went to a rehearsal, the very first rehearsal. Like when I first met the bands, I went to a rehearsal. Obviously, Clive already knew them, and they played "My Girl," but Mike Barson was singing it. This is a you know hit. This has got to be a hit song. But Clive and I you know, had a chat. <laughs> And we, you know, we just couldn't work out why Mike was singing it and not, um, and not Suggs. Anyway, when we came to record it for real, we got Suggs to sing it. And it was, yeah. My girl's mad at me. I didn't want to see the film tonight. I found it hard to say. She thought I'd had enough of her. Why can't she see? And uh, so, yeah, that, that stood out to me as being a hit single. So what were the other songs you said? So did you say Night Boat to Gyro? Oh, yeah, so you got Embarrassment, um, Baggy oh, yeah, Trousers. Sorry, Embarrassment. embarrassment. Yeah, that was, that, again, I thought that was a hit single as well, definitely. Wasn't sure about Night Boat to Gyro, to be honest. But, yeah, I think, you know, once, it, once we kind of worked on it, it kind of developed. Yeah. That was, that was when you heard straight away as a single, when you? Yeah. Sorry, embarrassment. Yeah, I just yeah. heard it again. Yeah. Like, like my girl, that, that was another one. I just thought, you know, this is definitely um, a hit single. Show you. 
So the thing about madness that that it seems like it must have been quite logistically. You got seven very strong personalities. You got, I mean, they all wrote songs, but five of them were, were, were really good songwriters. I mean, how would you, as a production team, deal with those personalities in the studio and all those people trying to write songs and get songs on albums? Well, actually, the first album was easy. Yeah, I mean, well, the songs were already written, and we just recorded mm. the songs that they'd already written for that first album, and it, and it was a bit of a race, really. Because they they wanted to get it out um, before the specials got their first album out, uh, and it was kind of kind of a bit strange. We, and we did the whole album in three weeks. We did a week at Eden Studios, and then we moved to CW, which was the studio I used to work at. But when we got there, band that were in before us were the specials. You know, with Elvis Costello producing them, <laughs> and there was bits of tape, bits of stuff lying around. So we <laughs> we did have a listen to what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was quite interesting hearing it. And uh, but Dave Robinson just wanted to get it out. I mean, yeah, we started recording in September, and the album was out. I think it was the album was out before Christmas, wasn't it? I think. So was that your first interaction with Elvis Costello? Um, well, we never interacted with him there because yeah, he did the specials in that studio, and he'd already left and moved on. And we okay. I'm trying to think though. Maybe we... no, no, I hadn't met him at that point. No, I hadn't. So uh, that came later. Elvis produced a couple of tracks on the Clive Langer and the Boxes album. Right, yeah. So that hang on, it's Clive. Sorry, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> was that Clive's first interaction with him? I think it probably was, yeah. Yeah, you'll have to ask him that one <laughs> when he finally gets on board. <laughs> so back to so back yeah. to Madness then. So that were there like factions within the band you had to deal with? Or would you deal with like a bunch of individuals or do you be dealing with them as a group or would it be a, a variety Ooh. of... Early on, they were they were a group. I mean, later on, it became a bit. There were some <laughs> difficulties in the bands. You know, you know, certain members were kind of falling out. And, yeah, mm. but that was much, much, much later on. You know. Yeah. Right, he said, "I'm back. What do I do? Hold on. Right. All right. Click. click on the link. Click on the link. Come on, come on, Clive. You can do it. Come on. Click on the link. And you know why Clive never got involved in the? Um... Was he not the technically minded one then? No. <laughs> you surprised me. <laughs> I, think, I think you've sussed that already. <laughs> I've sent it to him again, so so he should get it any second. Hello. Oh, there he is. He's done it. Yes. Hello. <laughs> oh, hello. wow. Hi. <laughs> the wonders of modern technology, eh? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> also, my phone keeps going weird. Alan explained that you weren't the technical one of the two. I'm not very technical, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've established that. Okay, so we're we're in 1980 now. So you missed the preamble. So you missed the, the um, pre-1980 okay. bit. Well, that's good. Trying to clarify. Trying to clarify when you first met Elvis Costello. I I met Elvis Costello when when I did the first Clive Langer and the Boxes gig, and it was on the Royal Iris in in Liverpool, which is a boat. And um, I think I had it. Ian Brody was in the band for that night. Um, I, Elvis liked the EP I did that Alan worked on, so he helped me to get signed to Radar because uh, Radar Records at that time. So, because he really liked my EP, he said, "Oh, if you're going to play live, you know, I'd like to play before you, you know, support you." So, uh, that's lovely, Elvis. You're so great. And then he turns up <laughs> and plays like all his hits. Chelsea, you know, <laughs> Alison, everything, just before I go on for the first time ever 
as the boxes. So I don't know what he was up to, but it was great. It's flattering, you know. But um, I don't know if that was the first time, but I think it was the first first time. But it was um, a funny old trick, really. What was the difference between him producing you and you producing him? <laughs> he he liked things quite rough, and uh, I think I was at uh, that time uh, with Alan more controlled, and he had just produced the specials. So it, actually, listening back, it's quite amazing what he did with me. But uh, it was a, a different kind of attitude down. You mean compared to the rest of the album? Well, compared to what Alan and I were doing. It was less controlled. It was it was a wilder approach. It was looser. It was uh, yeah. It, it, it was different to what I had in my mind, you know. And and that's what a producer should be, I suppose. He, you know, he, he changes things and moves things around into different areas and surprises you. I mean, it, a- Elvis was. I, I found it hard to accept what he was doing at the time. Now I listen to it and I really enjoy it. So did the two of you always have an ethos and an approach to production that was kind of like the same? Did it change through the uh, 80s? Uh, it... I, we didn't talk about it. We didn't plan it, I don't think, Alan, did we? We never talked about it. We just got on with it. Yeah, we just yeah, we just got on with it. We just, whichever bands. We, we tried to bring out the best. Of a, we, you know, we, we didn't try and stamp any identity of ours on the band. We, we tried to bring out the best. Even though I really like producers like Trevor Horn, who do, who do stamp their mm. identity on bands, we were yeah. so, I think Clive and I were totally different to that, and we tried to find the best out of the bands. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it took a long time to get it out of them. <laughs> but, sometimes uh, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but when the band when the bands were good, it, I mean, most of the bands were. You, you had to spend a bit bit more time with the drummer. <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is the worst example of that oh oh, oh <laughs> um, a good example of that what madness like <laughs> well the beginning well yeah i mean woody's amazing he's great but he it was he, he wasn't like a session drummer at that time he, he probably i mean he became one but um, a lot of the bands mm. we work with, we get them in their early stages, and the, the, the drummers hadn't really settled in to their art form or their, whatever you want to call it. And um, <laughs> so, you know, you, di- you, you didn't timing could be a problem, couldn't it, Alan? With certain bands, yeah. And this is before we started using click tracks, so yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, timing could be. A I was gonna, I was gonna say. So, did you start yeah. using click tracks when available? And how do you explain to a drummer using a click track without it seeming like you're you're criticizing their their timing, their ability to be steady as a drummer? Well, we didn't always use click tracks, and uh, I don't know. Most of the time, they they yeah they 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 like using them. I mean, they want to yeah they want to be in time. So so if a click track kept them in time, they were most of the time they were happy to use one. Help them out. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I think um, also sometimes you tried it with a click, you tried it without a click, you yeah. compared the two uh, results. And, um, you know, sometimes it, things could groove better without, uh, you know, with really good drummers. They, it, it, a click isn't a problem, you know. Yeah. So I was talking to Hugh Padgham last week and he was talking about, you know, those drummers that are technically good but don't have a sense of feel. 
and that's how important that is as well. <laughs> there's, there's feel and there's technical proficiency as well. Uh, it, well, it can work, yeah, it can work at any way, can't it? Uh, you, you can get a, like, a drummer who's not in time, and yes, and the track is exciting. And if you get a drummer to be perfectly in time, you know you've got a solid background. But, but when you get to the end of the mix, you think, actually, it could be a bit stagnated. You know, it's not uh, stag that's the wrong word. It could be a bit uh, stiff, mm. really. Hello, that's a word that we've used before. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know, like, drummers and recording, it, sometimes they just don't make it. And, and yes, we should have been like George Martin and got someone else in occasionally. But most of the time we persevered, uh, Alan did especially, and, and it was worth it, you know. 1981. Okay, let's move on then. So 1981, another Madness album, seven, another four hit single. So we had three consecutive years we had four big hits for madness which is quite amazing 12 hit singles in three years including yeah. a, tw a two minute instrumental um the lost palmer seven so when was that decided to be a, a single was it a, a feeling like you can release anything and not be a hit at this point we, did it we, feel like that like it was like Dave robinson decided on that one didn't he Brian? yeah Dave Dave was, i was going to say it wasn't our choice no. We, we would t tell him what we thought, you know, when you heard embarrassment or something, oh, my girl, single, single, you know, yeah. but we didn't think of yeah. One Step Beyond or Lost Palmer's Seven as, you know, big hit singles. But he he, he chose them and yeah. he pushed them. He was the record company, so if he chose them, he, he put his life on it, you know, and, and made them hits, which was really good for us. Did you ever make any suggestions for singles, like thinking this one should definitely be a single that was different to the choice that, that Dave had chosen? Uh, I can't remember if we did that or not, but um, we might have influenced. I can't, you know, we weren't adamant about anything. I mean, normally the singles were obvious. Mm. Yeah. I mean, were you bothered about the singles because you were there to produce an album? Did you actually care about what the singles were? We were a, a singles production team. If yeah. you think about, you know, Marilyn or, you know, like whatever we did, you know, Hazy Fantasy or all those things at that time, it's like we're Re focused on hit singles. Re sorry, that reward was a one-off single that we did, you know, mm. with, with Teardrop Explodes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we were, yeah, we were singing. We had done trees. So in terms of, yes, they were both hits, weren't they? So were you selected yeah, to do that quite because often, of your... Like, treason wasn't a hit. hit the first and, time round. Until reward oh. being a hit. Yeah. So when you you hear reward and it's it's like two minutes forty two, it's like it's not a single second wasted on that song. It's just pure like. Yeah. It's like decision engineered to be. It's just such a perfect pop song. It, it was it was recorded as a B side, I think, and then it it changed as it morphed into a yeah. an A side.
But you weren't brought in to, to do it as a single then? No, we, we did, um, what was it, some kind of over bollocks sort of song that was yeah. supposed to be the single. Yeah, I'm going to see what it's called. Um, yeah, the thing about reward, sorry, going back to reward though, I remember, you know, Clive and I had them, you know, we had that trumpet solo on there. And I remember the record company turning around and saying, no, you need to replace that with a guitar. And because we'd a, at that point, we were riding high in our careers. We took some of the off. <laughs> I'm not having a guitar, so I'm having a yeah. trumpet solo. And that was the one thing that, you know, really got, you know, in reviews, got raved about was that trumpet, you know. Anyway, mm. yeah, I'm sorry, just thinking. Anything is different, yeah. And Julian Cope, how is he to work with? Uh, Julian was great to work with, uh, you know, except, I mean, this is a story I've told many times, you know, when we got to the last chord of reward, the acid had kicked in. And we spent more time we spent more time discussing the harmonic values of the last chord than we did recording the whole track. So uh, yeah, was it good for the first three hours and then it was downhill after that? Yeah, well, I mean it was a really quick kind of it was the mix I'm I'm talking about really. We, we, you kind of mixed it and I think it was the mix or it was the end of the recording. And it, and it was just all about the harmonic values of the dimension of the, <laughs> the bass. <laughs> yeah, it's also, it's also got the, the reward has got one of the best opening lines of any pop song. Bless my cotton socks, I'm in the news. You can't yeah. get any better. Yeah. That. yeah. That is one of those perfect openings. I mean, how do you top that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I ran down in my notes. Who was the most challenging to work with? Julian Cope, Kevin Rowland, Elvis, Elvis Costello, or Morrissey? Kevin Rowland. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you, but, yeah. You know, that was worryingly I mean, quick to answer that. I was, a bit, I was expecting a bit more thought yeah, then. He, did, he didn't ask me, did he? I would have agreed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to get to that shortly. Also, Alan, you produced... Temple Tudor, Swords of a Thousand Men. I had that single as a kid. I loved that single. Yeah, Ooh, right, they're, they're, right. they're using it at the moment on, on a TV ad. Haven. A breath of fresh air. On the scene. Break it. Get royalties for that. Well, I, no, I don't think I am. I, I, maybe I need to look into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put your foot down, yeah. So how, how did that, you did the album, didn't you? But how did that how did that song come about? How did that, um, was that quite easy to produce? Well, I did that one with Bob Andrews. And um, so that was just a one-off thing. And then, then the album, I did, that, I did that on my own without him. But yeah, yeah, it was just great. And, uh, and I remember, you know, I played a lot of the drums on, you know, I dug the drums in at Beijing Street Studios. We did that, and and you know, I went down and set the drums up in the toilet. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Alan, you you played a, a few drum kind of fills and bits and pieces in your hello, time. John, hello, John Gotta Hello, yeah. hello, 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 John Gotta 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 I was hoping we were going yeah, to do I was that. Gonna, I was gonna... 
I was going to devote about half an hour to the Alexis Sale single, right? So I, I set some time aside for that because we have to give that some serious consideration. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I was also sorry. I on. normally always play a song five minutes before the um, interview starts. And I was going to play Katanga by Lenny Henry. All So 82 was a big year. Um, you started the year though with Cardiac Arrest, which was like your first match. like, I'm madness over because you didn't get top 10. Did you feel any kind of pressure when they didn't break the top I 10? Mean, or personally, I, I don't think Cardiac Arrest is their most commercial song. So for them to release it and put it out as a single and get what they got, it isn't bad. Papers in the morning on head walking to the bus stop he's longing for his bed waiting with his neighbors in the rush out do got to get the first bus so much for him to do he's got to hurry got to get his seat can't miss his place got to rest his feet ten more minutes till he gets there the crossword's nearly done it's getting so hard these days not nearly so much fun his mind wanders through the office, his telephone desk and chair. He's been happy with the company, they've treated him real fair. Think of seven letters, begin and end in C. Like a big American car, but misspelled with a D. I wish his bus would get a move on, driver's taking his time. I just don't know, I'll be late. Oh dear, what will the boss say? Pull yourself together now, don't get in a state. Don't you worry, there's no hurry It's a lovely day, could all be going your way Take the dog's advice, let up enjoy your life Listen to what they say, it's not a game they play It's not a sing-along, the subject matter is depressing, you know yeah, It's about a heart uh, it's not, it's not yeah. about Mike's... Mike's mother, yeah. I thought it was Carl. I think Carl write about his father's heart attack. Is it Carl? Yeah, no, I, th- I well, hmm. Clarification corner. Alan was right. It was about Carl's Smith's dad. Thank you. Mm. No, I thought it, I th- anyway, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. Langer. That's what Dave Carl said to me. Hey, Mr. Langer. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> hey, you got that wrong. Uh, I don't hey, know. I can't have you seen the um? Have you seen the Seven Ragged Men website? It's a no. madness website done by a guy called Ian. It's absolutely amazing. It's the best website I've ever seen for a band, and like a chronology of their entire story. It's that Italian. What's it called? Check it out. It's called Seven Seven Ragged Men. It's absolutely brilliant. It's the best website I've ever seen for a band. I got lost in it for wow. days when I found it. Let's write um, that down. So Complete Madness, House of Fun. So when you're doing a greatest hits, I assume this was always designed to be a single. What? Well, House of Fun. yeah, we, we recorded this as a oh, single. Oh, House of Fun, yeah. Yeah. God. There's a real story attached to this. Go on. Because when we recorded it, it wasn't called House of Fun. It was called um, Hemis Facade. 
Because, yeah, because it is about, you know, going into the chemist and buying condoms and things. Welcome to the House of Fun didn't even exist. That chorus didn't exist when we first recorded it. But the um, the Welcome to the House of Fun didn't, wasn't even in it. And Dave Robinson came down to the studio and listened to it and said, well, you know, this is good, but it hasn't really got a chorus. And he was right. So, you know? well, so but, was it just literally the verses running all the way through it? And that was it? Uh, no, no, it had a, had a bridge. It had a bridge. was not it? Yeah. And it was kind of really, it was an album track. And then he was, he was going, actually, if this had a chorus, and it was like a challenge. It's like, wow, we, yeah. can, we can do this. Alan, explain technically how you did it. Well, we, prob- we probably should have just re-recorded it, but we didn't, you know, because we, we'd had the whole song finished yeah. without, without, the cor- without the new chorus. So rather than just go yeah. and re-record it from scratch again, we decided to copy the drums from what was what, what became the bridge and, um, and record all the cor- this new chorus that Mike had written. At we'd all written. Yeah, it was... Huh? <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> you, you, didn't get the, you didn't get the credit though, did you, eh? No, no, no. no okay. was, yeah, we, we um, did all right, producers. So, so anyway, what we okay. did, we just, we, we just recorded this chorus. Huh. I, I, I copied the drums from the two-inch tape to another two-inch tape, recorded this new chorus, and then I literally spliced it in. But because the word were of welcome... Were is always you know he's saying it before before the downbeat. So when we put the song together, when we put it all together, it was "Welcome to the House of Fun." So Suggs had to go back in and do all the words, all the welcomes again, and um, yeah. So Suggs took the microphones, went what? No, he you know he went and what? He did welcome. It, well, I think he sang like probably he sang, sang the whole thing. Like, okay, whole line, and we just used whichever bit we wanted. I can't remember. Yeah, but. Oops, it's so sorry. seamless, you can't. But um, now, most something... edits, you can tell when the edit comes. Yeah. yeah, this is before Pro Tools, so this was all literally done with, you know, splicing the actually cutting the tape and splicing it together. So yeah. Sorry to butt in, but the uh, special thing about that chorus, uh, it's a bit like ABBA or something. We put down the piano tune for Suggs to sing. Well, go to the house for everyone to sing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and and we and when we finished it, it was like okay, we take that piano out, but no, that no. piano really yeah. makes the chorus jump out. Yeah, there was you know happy accidents always. Yeah. We we yeah. we we were our recording career is full of happy accidents yeah. and 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 also you know things that we uh, planned and and thought about and made sure happened but uh th- in that case it was great it, it went wow it went zing yeah <laughs> and it's also one of the best lyrics of the 80s as well it's basically it's the litany of euphemism for buying condoms isn't it that's, that's, yeah. that's... Yeah, which is, yeah. Which is the ultimate subversive. As a nine-year-old, you had no clue. It's about a fun fair. You know, you see the videos. No, about... you, you, you wouldn't unless you were advanced. It'd be nine-year-old. worried. It'd be worrying if I knew what that was. Oh, he's talking about condoms. Yeah, nine-year-old, it wouldn't have fitted. Um, also on the... Um... 
In the city was on the on the uh, complete madness. I was always as a kid thought of that as a single because it was on Greatest Hits. For a Japanese commercial, something wasn't yeah. it? Is that yeah. Right? yeah. You know, one of the co writers, you know, that Azuf Inui created the karaoke machine. Oh, we did, I didn't know that. Yeah, the guy that co wrote in the city with uh, Madness. Co wrote in the city. Well, the only yeah, person. Got, like, six oh, because we, from the advert, there was an advert. Yeah. No, 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 there was actually, that's bollocks. The, um, we 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 made the bass line up to go with Honda 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 you know, Honda 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 City Honda 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 It will catch your eye in the city City wa news ni aafurete live peak Honda City Because when we work with session mm-hmm. musicians they go to open to Honda and they go bum dap bum dap bum dap because everyone was doing it at that time. So when it came to the Honda advert, I think we, you know, we just bantered around and went, oh, Honda it, you know, bum dap bum dap. And then, and then they sang over it, Honda, 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 you know, and, and that's how it kind of happened. And it was based on the fact that it was kind of slang of a, you know, it was a recording studio baseline slang that uh, created that song, really. Yeah. And, and money. Driving in my car was also a standalone single. So was there a reason for doing so many? Because there's quite a few standalone singles. Was it a case of just pressure to get a single out? So No, it was, it was you know, when you when you hear a song like Mike's driving in my car, you then, you know, in my mind, you could suddenly go, Bring. it's like a little film. It's like, whoa, what can we do here? You know, and he's like, Mike is the same as me. So I, I, don't, uh, I think he's, he's doing half the production and ideas, and I'm going along with it and making sure they happen, and Alan's making them happen. So it's one of those, and you know, like Michael Caine, you know, you just go for the graphic of the, of the song. You know, let's make this really audibly visual, you know. Let's go. <laughs> it's like fun. There were the songs and the videos kind of in, in tandem with each other. 
like as a song was being written and recorded, were you or were they thinking of the video at the same time? Something like song like Our House, for example. The videos were nothing like vision to do with us. But in terms of the I band, mean, I was, I was they... thinking of the song being visual, not, yeah, the, not yeah. the video, you know, if you know yeah, what I mean. Of, so, you yeah, know, sure. I was brought up with, um, and so was Alan, with, with songs like, like where, where there's like Summer in the City and it sounds of, the sounds of motorbikes and, mm. and Summer in oh, the City. Yeah, and, yeah. Bah, bah. yeah and, and those, I loved all those songs where you, and Motown songs and Beatles songs where you, you heard the sound of what they were talking about. And uh, so it was yeah. fun to exploit it uh, uh, and explore it and, you know, enjoy it. Uh, the intro to our house, it's a brilliant intro. Was this always designed to have this kind of layered instruments coming <laughs> in, long intro? It's quite a long intro for a madness song, isn't it? When we get straight to it. Yeah. I, don't, I, I mean, it was obviously worked on. Like we worked on it, but it wasn't. I don't know if it was planned, Alan. Is he still yeah. here? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. He's <laughs> falling asleep. <laughs> that the intro is just how they wrote it. We yeah, maybe probably. I don't remember planning it that much. No, I, mean, I remember. I mean, the I DJs been, were the thing that were planned. Yeah, they came late. Yeah. I mean, rehearsals. We would have re rehearsed it and built it, but we didn't know that the strings or the, you know the horns were going to be as good as they were. Father wears his Sunday best Mother's tired, she needs a rest The kids are playing up downstairs Sister's sighing in her sleep Brother's got a date to keep He can't hang around Our house In the middle of our street Our house In the middle of our Okay, and what part of the process would you be thinking about strings and horns? Would, when they write the song, would it be like, would we see strings and horns? Would it be something you'd bring into the, like, suggest you get the, you get your band playing the song, you've got the band version, and you think, okay, what can we do with this? And you start to suggest different arrangements. Uh, we, by the time we did our house, it was a luxury we could afford. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'd be thinking, yeah, the strings will be coming in. I didn't know what they would be playing and if they'd be as bad as they were on Night Go to Cairo or... <laughs> you, you, you just took the words right out of my mouth there. I was just going to say that. But we had... We what had, was wrong uh, with the strings on Night Go to Cairo? Well, the, he was given the brief of uh, Egyptian strings, but he misheard uh, as gypsy strings. So <laughs> the strings on it was a gypsy kind of thing, which... Anyway, anyway, so when we mixed it originally, <laughs> we just put them right back. You know, you could hardly hear them. And then right. a few years later, a few years later, Dave Robinson asked me to remix it. I can't remember what, or, or something. And I just thought, fuck it, I'm going to have these strings really loud. <laughs> so we put them up. <laughs> put these strings and Dave, I remember Dave Robinson went, that's fantastic. You put, you just put strings on it. And I, no, no, they, they were always, they, they've always been there, Dave. But, we just sunk them down on the mix because well it was the first it was the first madness record it was a bit embarrassing to have strings on a, a young scar kind of band you know a, 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 and especially when they were gypsy and not egyptian
No, with with our house, I mean, you know, David Bedford was our became our friend and compatriot, and we worked together on ideas, and so we would have discussed exactly where things were going to build. It, it, it would have been a, a lot of work from him and me. Quite often, I mean, I, you know, sorry, Alan, but quite often you were busy doing other things, and I'd be discussing with him what could happen on the track and how to build it. Um, but he would come up with amazing stuff that would blow us, you know, made way better than what I was had in my head. Like like one better day. That's got amazing strings on it. Very oh yeah. Well, we we, we yeah. worked. We will work together from then then on for quite a while. Yeah, one better day. Suggs's thing. Arlington House. You know, like Anne in the video. His wife. That was in the later days, wasn't it? Of madness, really. Quite subtle. Not nothing. Fuck all to do with Scar. You know, like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long, yeah. yeah, long way away from one step beyond, isn't it? Exactly. It was like into the oh, we're really sophisticated mode. But it, you know, we we were all there together. Talk then turn to Kevin Rowland of Dex's Midnight Runners. How did you meet up with him to work on that Shirae? Go on, Alan. Well, well, the first thing mm. we did was Celtic Soul Brothers as a one-off single. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Celtic Soul Brothers and the Strong Devoted. Clive and I went up to Birmingham to rehearse with them. We got to the rehearsal studio and the whole band were lined up like they were on page. Kevin had him like an army, it was very regimented. So, um, Celtic Soul Brothers was a one-off single. wasn't a hit the first time out and then uh, then we did the uh, tour IA album yeah so what was the question again I forgot what the question was. well it was just we just that answered the question of how you, how you got involved in it um so yeah. what was the relationship like with Kevin I mean he sounds like somebody who is very exacting as to what he knows exactly what he wants yeah exactly mm. when we came to do the actual album we did it at genetic studios which is the studio I set up with Mars and Russian and we, you know, in the country, so we, yeah, we did it there. And Kevin wasn't at all into any, you know, he didn't want any double tracks. But you know, Clive and I—that's the way—that's the way Clive and I worked. You know, that's how we made things sound. You know, we, you know, we're tracking different parts in. And anyway, he was—he used to go, <laughs> he used to go out, kind of jogging every morning because it was, you know, it was a residential studio. So he used to go out. So we get the horn section in, and we're put more parts on or double track them but we'd keep them really quiet and just kind of like over the days we'd just edge it up in the you know as we, so we'd kind of get used to it 
But um, yeah, we were. He, he, yeah, he, he didn't want the he, he didn't want the bass and drums very loud, and we end, ended up again. Clive and I will edge them up slowly during the mix and to mm. <laughs> how we thought they should be. But yeah, it, yeah, it was difficult. Even so more, he yeah. was going for more of a live feel. Yeah, effectively. Yeah. You wanted a bit more production to, to that sound of uh, it. Well, well, that was the thing as well, yeah, because um, because on, for the album, we, uh, we had the two, two fiddle players and we had the horn section. And we did. We did record it all live. But then, you know, obviously, you know, we then replaced things or double-track things and just to make it better because, you know, live, recording something live and putting it on a record doesn't sound great. You've got to try and make it. Yeah, like, like it would have sounded if you'd been in there at a gig listening to it live, you know. But that's things. <laughs> a live sounding record, a, a band that sound live on record is really produced to sound live rather than being a live band in yeah. the studio. If you think about Nirvana and or Ethan Hawke's, you know, the, even the records that sound like they're live, if you compare the record to what they sound like live, you'll <laughs> yeah. notice the difference. <laughs> mm. There's yeah. been a lot yeah. of work there to make it sound that way and it was a weird one for me personally because I didn't have the freedom to move around and like I think you know create all this turmoil like with madness uh, or whatever anyway with Dex's with that album it was more like a matter of let's get this record made make sure it sounds fucking great that was my position in it uh, as opposed to being in there deep with it because Kevin had it sorted and so what mm. I don't you know and it, he was right you know I didn't work on the next record he didn't need me but, you know maybe maybe I helped a little bit I hope to just get the record made and um, make it sound good yeah. yeah daddy then asked a question about come on Ali 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 uh, when Kevin first played us the demo it was called James Stan and me yeah, it wasn't coming on in, didn't even come into it. it was just, you know, he'd written, this, he'd written this song about James Brown. Stan was who he called Van Morrison and me was him. So he'd written this song about James Brown, Van Morrison and him, <laughs> James Stan and me. And, and, he, and, he, and he sung that as, a, as the guide vocal. So when we actually <laughs> came to do the vocal, <laughs> the real vocal, he went out and went, come on, I leave it. Hang on. <laughs> Where the fuck is James Dan? <laughs> Where's that come from? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. That was just a guide. That was just that was just a guide thing. No, no. The song is coming on it. <laughs> <laughs> but we got so used to weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, a few weeks anyway, of um <laughs> him singing James. So the actual lyric was a last minute thing, was it? Well, we didn't hear it. We never heard that yeah. lyric until he went out there to sing it for the first time. Yeah. To do the lead vocal. Until then, the guide vocal was James Stan and me. And yeah, we spent wow. six weeks rehearsing, yeah. recording, and everything. And it, it was James Stan and me. And um, <laughs> then, because um, what was it? Oh God, the the Celtic Soul Brothers yep. had been released, and uh, it wasn't really a big hit. And personally, I thought that was really strong. And I mean, it was released after come on Eileen and it was a hit but um, it was confusing to know what was going to be a hit from Dex's at that point and I, I remember myself and Roger Ames who was the 
record label boss just sitting outside going it's a fucking you know nursery rhyme and it's like and Alan's going it's gonna be like number one you know it's like <laughs> and uh, Alan was right hang on maybe I should have had Roger Ames's job fucking hell hang on what's happening <laughs> because you listen to the song now it's, it's just so obvious with the, when it slows down and speeds up it just it's just yeah, that's a funny one because I get people going, wow, amazing production, the way you slowed it down, speeded it up. <laughs> well, actually, it was exactly like that in the rehearsals, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was always there. Yeah. <laughs> so- yeah. So you had two massive hits in America that year with Our House and Come and Eileen. Did that lead to offers to produce in America? Were there any opportunities that arose? Uh, not not big time. No, it was later when we had... Um, Bush. There might be John came in, you know, and then really, yeah. yeah and then after, after Bush, I mean, obviously because Bush was an American phenomenon, not an English phenomenon, so... We're, we're talking about the 80s, aren't we? So we can't yeah. talk about Bush because that's yeah, yeah, so oh, oh, right. yeah. Forget Bush. But it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> that was where music ended for me. Like, it's oh, just yeah, an 80s yeah. podcast. Oh, okay, right. There's nothing oh. beyond December 1st, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you guys, but yeah. I, I could probably change your mind. We get back to like really brilliant music and talk about. A little got a new motor by Alexi Zale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in '82, but it wasn't a hit until '84. But we're talking about because we're in '82, so. Well, uh, personally, it was um, a bit like shipbuilding. Basically, they they were two records that didn't have record companies. Well, I've never heard that song compared to shipbuilding before. Ship I guess that's a new. Neither record had a. A record deal at the time that's what you're okay. Talking about. okay okay right so yeah. he made the record with that so the, you know so alexi was like at the comedy store in uh in soho and uh, you know i used to go down there and um, watch him with all those people who became so famous you know and it was just like blimey you know sorry i was gonna say fucking hell but um it was like <laughs> make an amazing record so i spoke to him and mentioned it because and i had at that time alan myself had the power the power to 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 do that so we created the, the track and i didn't want him to stop i didn't want him to say you know to say to alexi oh this has to be a two minute 40 track or whatever just do what you do live so we we created the backing track alan was a drummer Ben Barson played the keys. You know, it was like uh, we just did this track, and he could rant and rave over it. I think it was in the key of G. You know, you, I worked that much out. I wrote a little tune around it, so it just went down, you know. And um, and all of a sudden, we had like thirty minutes of Alexi raving, <laughs> and then it was like Alexi went, and then there's Alan. Uh, you know, in air studios with tape around his legs, just no, trying to put the thing Westside together. Then. You know, also, no, no, well, no, no, we, no. we did say no, to him, give, was, give him the full. It was just, yeah, it was just all wet editing because it was just way before 
Pro Tools and where all those, hello, 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 yeah. all that could have been done, you know, 30 seconds on a Pro Tools. Yeah. It took, took me, you know, all and day. That... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, Shopping we, yeah, it'd be like, hey, I was going, can you, you know, what about if it goes, uh, 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 and Alan's going, all right, let, let, let's do it. And it was like, okay, I'll, I'll see you in an hour or two hours. Or, you know, it was a master class of uh, tape cuffing. But it was also a, a really interesting one-off project. And that's why I mentioned shipbuilding, because that was um, a one-off project that was fuck all to do with record companies or anything yeah. else. Yeah. And that far, yes, that's the next one up. So there was a nine minute version of a 12 inch that a load drum got a new motor, but I, I ran out you of time. You fucking cunt, you cunt, you yeah, wank, you piss. Is that what it says? I never got around to listening to it. Is that what it says? Or were you just insulting me? No, no, no. no. I've talked to me then, or was it? Alan told him to say that. <laughs> no, just, you know, chop it up. I'll start the episode with that and lead into you guys, yeah? <laughs> so, going from the ridiculous to the utterly sublime, back to um, shipbuilding. So, obviously, you co-wrote that with Elvis. It's one of the best songs of all time, it's got to be said. I mean, how often do people like come up to you and say, oh, I love that song? Does that happen every week? No. The best one was uh, finding a Q magazine when I was on the road with Deaf School in a hotel room and it had David Bowie's oh, favourite yes. songs. And I think it was number one. And he didn't, all the time I worked with him, he didn't know and I never told him that I'd been part of the shipbuilding project. So that was quite incredible. But And, and yes, I do get, you know, I do get people especially musicians and shit you know like <laughs> but it, it, again it wasn't planned it was just something that i had to do and and without a record company so i'm really proud of that so is it, it was, true you you had your own words for it yeah, yeah what was it originally called well i was i was thinking of call you i'm gonna call you you know it's like missing someone or something mm, mm. shit <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then, then you know, I, I gave it to various friends of mine, you know, but it wasn't working. I knew the track was very special and I knew it was based on Robert singing uh, Strange Fruit. The southern tree bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood on Somebody said 
so and I knew I wanted Robert to sing it so I was writing this homage to Robert Wyatt and um, and it was only Elvis who understood that really and and then he wrote this like way beyond anything I could have imagined lyric mm. and it was part of the political scene and the world scene of that time so it was I didn't know he was going to do you know it was like so it was whatever it's called serendipity you know like that sort of thing was there any kind of brief you gave him yes yes this is for Robert Wyatt this is for Robert Wyatt not for you it's it's and he said yeah I understand and that's why it's colloquial and that's why he goes is it worth it will I ask you it's real Robert White. Well, oh, yeah. I ask you, is it worth it? You know, it's like, it's Robert White. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and yeah. like, really cool, like, downbeat. Did you remember the first time you heard it with those lyrics? Did he have it on a tape? Did he sing it to you and play it to you? I w- was in New York with Alan. We were doing uh, a funny band with Fasiah, a kind of... Yeah, they were like kind of, uh, you know, big brass R&B kind of combo. Yeah. That guy. I, I, <laughs> I'll have a vodka gizmo. No, a vodka gimlet. He used to drink a vodka gimlet, didn't he? Look in the yeah, mirror. Yeah, that was it. Anyway, we were working with him. We are in a fucking cockroach-infested hotel in New York. And, um, well, the Gramercy uh, Park. Anyway, Elvis calls up. He's in Australia, and he said, "Clive, I've written the best lyric I've ever written." And I said, "Well, it's the best tune I've ever written." And it was one of those moments where it's out of our control, you know. It's like it's certain things happen that were like, "Whoa!" You know, you know, in in some ways, commercially, like a Bush album, or some, you know, or like a Come and Eileen, or Our House, or a meeting madness they're they're not in your control they just happen you know Mm. but you have to do it to make it happen (laughs) yeah you know it was the dream and the dream became bigger which version do you prefer for robert's version or the other version yeah robert that's the pure form then we it was great to produce elvis's version is it worth it The coat and shoes for the wife And a bicycle on the boy's birthday It's just a rumor that was spread around town By the women and children Soon we'll be shipbuilding And we decided that we'd do it in a kind of with Frank Sinatra's strings would make it different. We, it won't be mm. like indie fucking, you know, like it, mm. it's going to be like, let's let's go for it. And we did. We went for it and we got Chet Baker, you know. So yeah, how yeah, beautiful yeah. is that? Yeah. yeah. But then, okay, Alan, tell the story about Chet Baker's solo, please. <laughs> Again, that was another, another lot of editing because it was all done live. Chet, Chet played trumpet live and but there was a few kind of bum notes and rather than get him to kind of 
uh, overdub and, and replace it. We just did a few takes and then we literally just edited the Mulgy track together. So that, so the Elvis Costello version with Chet Baker is, is a lot of, a lot of a few, quite a few takes mm. together at different, different points with so. Did you actually give him any suggestions or or just let him just do his thing over a few takes and just edit the best bits out? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Can we tell Chet Baker what to do? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you can't tell Chet what to I mean, no. you couldn't. Yeah, yeah, I was just saying that, Clive. Rather than, than patch up what he'd already done, we decided just to record the whole band with him. And we, and we did yeah. quite a few takes and we just picked the best of, of the whole. So, we, you know, we... We didn't just edit the trumpet, we edited the whole band. Yeah, well, right. that, that's the story, yeah. It's amazing. And the editing is incredible, incredible, because editing a whole band just for a trumpet solo is outrageous. You know, like, and the tempo being okay, it means the band are fucking... Well, again, it, it, it's that pre-Pro Tools thing now. You could just, just do the trumpet. Yeah. You know, you, know, you could just take the trumpet yeah. off and play and it. It would be, it then, would be you know, soulless. It was just two-inch tape and, and you had to edit the whole two-inch tape. Yeah, because the rhythm section we were just playing, you know, good every time, so it didn't matter. You know, so we just got the bits, bits, bits of check and stuck it together. Brilliant track. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that with, with 83. Um, so as a production team, did you have like a production name? Were you like, was it just Langer, Win Stanley, or was it a uh, did you have a cover? Well, the yeah, first, the beginning, Clanger. Well, the first man to say was Clanger, Win Stanley. Yeah. yeah. So right. I think Clanger, Win Stanley sounded better than Langer, Win Stanley. Win Stanley, Langer, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's really weird. It's like <laughs> no, God forbid, no. Once you're used to it, what do you do? I you never thought about being like Claw Productions. I thought that'd be quite a good name. You never considered that. Oh, well, if you'd been our manager, we would have. <laughs> I'm trying to think, we, we might have used that at some point. I don't know. I, cool. I, would, I would have said, come on, Eileen, put it as a B-side. I'd have been rubbish as a manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Claw's Classics. Anyway, we've got a section here. I, I did ask you in the email, I don't know if you read it or not, about your, your, your favourites of the 80s. Okay. Uh, I don't know whether you've got it. Not this will be a total surprise to you. I'm calling this Claws Classics, okay? And this okay. is stuff you weren't involved with, but it was your favourite of the 80s. So what would you say is your favourite album of the 80s that you weren't involved with? Ooh. Oh, Scary Monsters. Oh, good one. Oh, oh no, no, I, I, hang on. Well, Grace, I mean, actually, I remember Clive and I were on a plane. We were going to New York, and Clive, who we sat in it, obviously, well, not obviously, but we were sitting next to each other on the plane, and he said, listen to this. It was Graceland's. There is a girl in New York City who calls herself a human trampoline. Sometimes when I'm falling, flying, tumbling in turmoil, I say, whoa, so this is what she means. She means we're bouncing into Graceland. You brought on that plane, Graceland, and, I, and, you, and you stuck the headphones on me and I listened to it, I thought, fuck. 
<laughs> that was ages, wasn't it? Graceland? Yeah. Yeah. 86, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, what about yeah. you, Clive? Of the 80s, I haven't, I didn't realize the answers had to be about the 80s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a clue in the name of the podcast. It is an 80s pub. All over the place. Oh, oh, great albums of the 80s. Uh, well, Slave to the Rhythm was a good sounding track, but um, I'm sure that's not my favourite. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I'm, really, I'm not very good at... Yeah, I'm going to go with Scary Monsters, I think. Over okay. What was the one you'd chosen for other times that wasn't the 80s then? <laughs> uh, the Nothing Can Stop Us album, when Robert Wyatt's singing uh, Strange Fruit, I, I put that down. I didn't know what this interview was going to be like. I didn't know <laughs> if, it, if it was going to be like me just going, give me your list of, you know, like, but if we're going to talk. Uh, so, yeah, Robert Wyatt, Nothing Can Stop Us. And... Um, do yeah. any of your answers for this have anything to do with the 80s, just out of interest? Think about no, the other no, question. No, none of them. I get to 79. Okay, that's close. I, I'll do that. So um, your favourite book of the uh, 1960s? Oh, well, it, it was written in 1918 or something. 1940. 18, so I could pretend it was 18. <laughs> I wrote it. I mean, I read it in that period. Anyway, okay, <laughs> no, this is useless, isn't it? Sorry, I'm useless. No, that's uh, fine. That's cool. Okay. No, it's a film, uh, a book called Le Grand Moan, which I studied at school when I was doing French A-level. It stuck with me. It's a very romantic novel by a guy who only wrote one novel and died in the First World War, Alan Fournier, and it's called Le Grand Moan. Mais quelqu'un est venu qui m'a enlevé tous ces plaisirs d'enfant paisible. Quelqu'un a soufflé la bougie qui éclairait pour moi le doux visage maternel penché sur le repas du soir. Quelqu'un a éteint la lampe autour de laquelle nous étions une famille heureuse, à la nuit, lorsque mon père avait accroché des volets de bois aux portes vitrées. Et celui-là, ce fut Augustin Maulne, que les autres élèves appelèrent bientôt le Grand Maulne. Et puis, le film était West Side Story. TV series. Hang on, we got right, there. You're interested on books, aren't we? Hang on. Oh, okay. Well, let them run through here, so we'll go to yours. Okay, okay. yeah, yeah, so, yeah, go so, yeah, your, your TV go series. You go. Go on, T. Well, the TV series, I went right up to date and called my agent. Okay, uh, so I've not seen that yet. Because I've been watching it, you know, like, so yeah. it's in my head. I mean, to me, I hate lists and preferences. I mean, because they change every week or yeah. you know but yeah. west side story you know le grand moan is a solid and then you know live event spirit at the hornsey town hall band called spirit okay you know? when was that 
Um, I think it was 6970 or 71. And Family, Clutes Cleek, which is the Railway Hotel in 69. I, I liked those gigs when I was a kid. And uh, I was like, you know, 14 or 15, 16. And I was in a pub and I was watching this music. And it was like, I think that it kind of really uh, influenced me. So that's why uh, I've written them down. And the song you wish you had produced. Oh. Let me to the rhythm. Uh, That's actually from the 80s. No, I think I could... Uh, maybe, like, Let's Get It On or something. Marvin Gaye, you know, like that sort of thing. Nice to get a bit of a groove. And, I mean, it's kind of... Also, it's kind of sexual, which is nice. We, we didn't... Alan and I didn't make very sexy records. Sexy records. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> John got a new motor. <laughs> nine-minute version. Well, of yeah, that... Uh, nine minutes is too long for sex, isn't it? Let's face it. So, Alan, you've done your best albums, your, your best book. Well, in the 80s, I didn't really have time to read because we were working so much. But, oh, yeah, I can imagine but in, there was a film of the 90s. It is my favourite film of all time, Shawshank Redemption. Okay, you know, okay. I then went back and read the Stephen King, the little novel, you know, um, what was it mm. called? Razor Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Yeah. So th- I had to go with that for that. It is amazing, that. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still a whole of thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. So you want an 80s film now, yeah? If you can think of one, that'd be good, yeah. Thanks. Well, I've got a few. I mean, well, Scarface, is, I really like Scarface, but probably <laughs> probably Spinal Tap. just hate it, really. Yeah. It does well, disturb me. But I it's rise disgusting. above it. I'm a professional, You're right? right? Yeah. <laughs> Blade Runner, was, actually, I went, Clive and I went to see that together, and we played Runner, didn't we? Yeah. We were somewhere. We were yeah. working somewhere, and we went and saw Blade Anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's quite you, embarrassing being in a having been in a band. It's quite embarrassing, but you know, it's almost like a mirror of like bollocks that you've dealt with, <laughs> you know, with the road crew and everything. <laughs> What's the most spinal tap moment you've experienced with a band? Oh, blimey, yeah. What's the most? I don't know. Have we ever experienced a spinal tap? Uh, moment? I, no, I have. Like having toured America and a little bit. You know, I was trying to be nice all the time, but it was more like, oh, oh, I know. It's like uh, <laughs> John John Wood, Reverend Max Ripple on the keyboards. Yeah. He's going, he, but something went down on his keyboard that he he built, and so he went screwdriver, screwdriver. Oh, I was just going to say that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and then they bought him an, a vodka and orange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Scotch and one and screwdriver, please. <laughs> um, and you, madam? The screwdrivers for me. 
I see. Um, would you like it now or after a meal? Well, now, please. There's nothing I can put right? What? Okay, best TV series. Fools on Horses. Is there any <laughs> other? There you go. That's ages. Well done. No. Also, we thought it might be an idea to give him some practice on grass, you see, because over in the States they use that stuff called AstroTurf. What do you prefer, Rodney? What do you prefer, AstroTurf or grass? Oh, I don't know. I never smoked AstroTurf. <laughs> Best live event? Live Aid. Live Aid. Were you there? Ooh. Was he there? Tell us about the helicopter with David. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, David, <laughs> Mr. Bowie, yeah, to um, over, oversee the sounds. So anyway, so I went in the helicopter with him and the bands and went to Wembley and uh, yeah, so... So, uh, yeah, so maybe I was involved. I, I'm, I'm not, yeah, maybe I said something I was involved in, but I was only involved in him, not the rest of the show, only, only so, the David Bowie part. But were you backstage the whole time? Uh, not all the whole time. I, I went out front when Queen came on. I was actually sitting on the, uh, on the just on the side there. On the, mm. you know, yeah. The right side. Yeah. So, um, so I was backstage until, for most of it until, once Bowie had performed, then I went out. And the song you wish you had produced? In the ashes, um, ashes to Ashes. Hard to improve that song, though, is it? I mean, what would you do to make it better? I don't know. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Do you know that um, David told me that he nicked the drum beat for Ashes to Ashes from My Goal, Madness? Yeah. Who, who told you that? David. Oh, right. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. You know, he, he said yeah, that's he true. My, I, I'm, trying to I'm trying to hear the drum beat to my girl and compare it to Ashes to Ashes. Yeah. That sort of thing. This is the end of part one of the interview. So that was part one of the interview with Langer and Stanley. Uh, we covered a lot of ground in these two episodes because they covered so much ground in the ages. I could have done five hours alone on just the Madness singles. Forget about the albums, just the singles. I mean, everyone from The Prince to Waiting for the Ghost Train, they did. From the late 70s to, to 86, they're all gems. And if you're from the UK, you know this already. If you're not from the UK, then uh, please check out one of the hundred or so different compilations there are for Madness. You will not be disappointed. Uh, also, as mentioned in the episode, if, if you do like Madness, I urge you to check out the Seven Ragged Men website. Definitive is the word. Excellent work there, so, so please check that out. 
So we only covered up to and including 1982 in this episode because there's just so much to cram in. The rest of the 80s will follow in part two. I'm not going to end with the Madness song because you just have to end with Shipbuilding. Literally one of the best songs ever written. And the definitive original version by Robert Wyatt. Diving for dear life. When could be diving for pelts. Yes, the perfect metaphor for the futility and pointlessness of war. Till next time, comrades, onwards and upwards. Is it worth it? A new winter coat and shoes for the wood. And a bicycle on the boy's birthday. It's just a rumour that was spread around town. By the women and children Soon we'll be shipbuilding Well, I ask you The boy said That they're going to take me to task But I'll be back by Christmas It's just a rumour that was spread around town Somebody said that someone got filled in For saying that people get killed in The result of the shipbuilding With all the will in the world Diving for dear life When we could be diving says my phone is fucked. I didn't even know he was doing it on his phone. But hang on, how can his phone be fucked if he's messaging me? <laughs> now saying, Very good it. point. So it looks like I'm on my own. <laughs> he's now saying I need to reboot. <laughs> I didn't even know climbing around the reboot. Anyway. Good night. <laughs>